welcome. I would like to uh, offer uh, special welcomes to some uh, guests who have uh, come from afar. Mr. and Mrs. Dalijani, who figure prominently in the book, they are here. I welcome them. Ms. Pita Daryabari, she hasn't come from far, but uh, she is uh, one of the, as we say, Sabkhune. Uh, welcome her. Uh, welcome all of you. Uh, we have one other event ne uh, next week. Uh, Mohsene Zakiri uh, has done some really interesting work on early Islamic history and the role that Iran plays and the relationship between Iran and uh, the uh, uh, Islamic uh, adventure in the country. It gives me great pleasure to introduce tonight's guest. It is hard not to wax hyperbolic about her. She has achieved something no Iranian writer has yet accomplished. Her debut novel, available here for your purchase, and her signature, maybe, is something of an international bestseller. That's translated in 27 languages and available in 70 different markets. But in my view, her true singular accomplishment is far greater than writing a bestseller. She has created in a narrative full of nuance and pathos, sophistication and suspense, or in the words of one critic, in a heartbreakingly heroic story, a panorama of the traumas and travails of not just her parents' generation, whose utopian dreams begot the 1979 revolution, but also the dashed hopes and continued aspirations, the broken hearts and the defiant determination of her own generation of Iranians, either in a benighted Iran or those forced to eat the bitter bread of banishment. At the center of the drama is her own story, a girl born in the infamous Ebbing prison, sometimes raised by relatives, sometimes receiving gifts from her imprisoned father, a bracelet made of pits of dates. But interspersed in this grossing narrative is the horrid tale of events in 1988 in the prison that was her place of birth, where some 4,000 prisoners were summarily executed on the mere suspicion that they might still harbor sympathies to their old ideals and ideas. That story, long one of the worst, best secrets of modern post-revolutionary history of Iran and its victims have now found in her fiction an elegant, heart-wrenching, and enduring voice. In Hamlet, Shakespeare says, foul deeds will rise, though all the earth overwhelm them. A quarter century of orchestrated silence has not overwhelmed these foul deeds. And I think we owe Ms. Sahara Delijani, a graduate of University of California at Berkeley, something of a local who now lives in Italy with her husband, we owe her a great debt of gratitude for her valor her brilliance as a writer of great fiction, and her role as a great chronicler of the human condition of Iranians at home and in diaspora. Please welcome Ms. Sadarika.
Um, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Milani, for inviting me for the beautiful introduction. I don't know what to say after that, actually. You should just keep talking. It's really great. Um, it's, it's really great to be here. I'm very happy to be here. I, well, I started um, writing this book um, well, in 2009, so it took me about three years to finish it. And, of course, it had many ups and downs. And um, a lot was happening as I was writing the book. Um, when I started it, um, the green movement just happened a few months after. So it was quite amazing to me that while I was writing tales of prison and torture and death, the same things were happening again 30 years later on the streets of Tehran, this time to my generation. So it was. Um, a historical coincidence that I um, could not ignore. Today I will, um, with my talk, I will incorporate two readings because I want to give you sort of an um, idea of how the book is is written. There are many different characters and um, we have characters who are, half of the book which is set in the 80s in Iran and half of the book which is set in from 2009 and on. So. I want to sort of give you the mother and daughter uh, perspective um, as, as we go. So I will begin with a reading and then I will give my talk, I will do another reading and I'll be happy to answer any questions you guys might have. Tehran, 1988. When she answered the phone and heard his voice, her heart sank. He didn't introduce himself, only said where he was calling from. But she knew before he said a word. There were faraway screams stifled in the hardness of his voice. He told her to come to the prison and collect her husband's belongings. She quietly hung up the phone and then wailed so loudly the windows rattled. She had not seen her husband in months. All the visits had suddenly been canceled. No one knew anything and everyone was dreading the worst. Later she heard of families who went to visit someone in prison and instead were handed belongings. They were told the person was no longer there. He was no longer anywhere. There was a piece of paper on the desk. First, the piece of paper was silent. Later, it spoke of death, although silently. They were told to write as their hands trembled. My husband is no longer anywhere. My wife is no longer anywhere. My son, my daughter, is no longer anywhere. That was how death was handed to a family, on a piece of paper with a bag half full of splinters of life asking for their signature. She was told that she'd been lucky. Not everyone had received a phone call. She'd been lucky to know that he was dead, to have been warned in advance. She didn't feel lucky. She felt empty, like a cave. That day, she kept death to herself. She sat among his clothes spread on the bed. She couldn't move. It was as if her body had gone to sleep. At night, she lay down on his clothes. She smelled his shirt, smelled it and bawled, smelled it and cursed them, smelled it and screamed his name and cursed him too. She was angry with him so angry that had he been there, she would have attacked him with her bare hands. 
In the middle of the night, she heard the sound of crying coming from the next room. It was like an alarm. She opened her eyes. His shirt under her skin was damp with tears, as if her face had shrunk and melted into the fabric. She used her hands to heave her body up and drag herself to the other room where her child sobbed desperately. She embraced her, whispering, shh, under her breath, patting the child softly on the back. In reality, she was trying to calm herself down, to buck herself up. <clears throat> the lightness of the child's body intimidated her, as did the child's vulnerability and the inconsolableness of her whimpers. Then and there she decided she would never tell her child about her father's death, about how he died. Even if it were the last thing she did, she would never let her daughter know this suffering. She didn't care what lies she had to tell, what secrets she had to keep. All she knew was that she had to keep history at bay, to keep her child safe, sheltered behind iron walls where the blood could not seep through. She stretched the tiny length of her daughter on her legs and gently rocked her until they both fell asleep. It must have been the desolation in her eyes that cast a spell over everyone. No one dared to contradict her, to try to change her mind, except his mother. With her, it was not easy. His mother fiercely refused, called it a monstrosity. She insisted that the child must know, like this, you are letting them kill him twice. His soul would never rest, she warned. His body would tremble in the grave. You owe it to him, his mother said. You owe it to his memory. She should have been more tactful, but in those days, being tactful was not her strongest point. That was anger. I don't owe him anything, she shouted, her voice quavering with rage. It's he who owes me everything. He owes me the happiness he promised me. He made me believe in it and he failed. He failed me, he failed his daughter. I won't let him take her away. He destroyed everything. His mother cried. She had lost a son, her only son. She should have been less cruel. His mother never ceased to make her request, asking for her sealed lips to break open. When his mother died, she wrote a confessional letter to her daughter and hid it in the dead woman's shroud. The letter was buried along with the old woman. Thank you. So today I would like to begin with a quote. Um, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez of his um, book, 100 Years of Solitude. And he says, things have a life of their own. It's simply a matter of waking up their souls. My promised land. I've been asked many times why if children of the jacaranda tree is based on real events. I didn't write a biography instead of a novel a biography on my parents' experience in prison and my own life. If it is a book about the tribulations of my family, of my birth behind bars, of my uncle's execution, of my father's years in prison, why fictionalize it? It is true. My mother did give birth to me in prison. My father did make a bracelet of date stones for me. And the photo of the three children taken by the aunt for her imprisoned sisters 
does in fact exist. But despite all of this, despite the emotional truth that perhaps resonates in the novel, because in one form or another, the characters are based, some partially, some fully, on real people, this is not a book about any of them. I was not interested in simply recounting what happened in those dark days after the 1979 revolution in Iran to my family. I wish to go beyond that. To go beyond the bracelet, beyond Evin prison, beyond the emotional and physical suffering my birth had for my mother, beyond an executed uncle who was never mourned or buried. This was not going to be another biography of a family who suffered at the hands of a ruthless regime. It was not going to be a tale that would set us apart in our suffering, highlight it, give substance to it, as if we were the only ones damaged. It was going to be a book where it does not matter who is who, who is whose cousin, who is whose child. It was going to be a book on a country that was sinking rapidly into the abyss. And the only way I could do that, to go beyond my family's story and in deep into the heart of a history that took its toll about thousands of people and changed the destiny of a country forever, was through the means of fiction. Because only, it was only through fiction that I could speak about every story that shaped my childhood and that of every other child born in those years. Hence, it is not a book either about me or my family. It is a book about the genesis of a dictatorship. What happens, how it develops, and the effects it has on a people, not only politically, but also emotionally, mentally, and even physically. In a way, for me, it wasn't even about Iran, but about what a dictatorship does to us and what it means to resist it. What happens when one regime replaces another? When fear becomes part of the daily life and when history feels like it is always on the making, always fresh, always immediate, never giving us a moment of repose. It is about what it means to live with silence, with silenced fear, silenced grief, with an evil that has passed and seems to have been forgotten. It is about the fear that binds all of us together and at once pulls us apart when living under the intolerable weight of a totalitarian regime. It is mainly and above all about our solitude, about the solitude that befalls a people when they are betrayed by those who were supposed to protect them, to provide for them, to take care of them. That is what makes the fear of a nation living under dictatorship different from all kinds of other existential fears. It is a fear that a person who lives in such circumstance feels cannot address in any way because she does not know who and where to turn to. I am a child of the Iranian revolution. One of the thousands of children born after 1979 who has heard and read much about what Iran once was, but has only lived in what Iran is today. In the 2,500 years of Persian history, my generation is the only one that has lived in a republic and not a monarchy.
That was essentially what the revolution was about, putting an end to the monarchy and beginning a new era as a republic. However, the revolution took a different turn. It gave birth to a theocracy, which set its roots in the ancient land, first through rhetoric and propaganda, and later through one of the most atrocious tragedies of recent Iranian history. The mass executions of thousands of political activists in the summer of 1988, a historical turning point that solidified Iran's new established regime into full-blown dictatorship. It is a dark day when a government turns against its own people, when it begins to repress instead of protect, to silence instead of listen. The day that a regime, too afraid to look its children in the eye, confronts them with prison, torture, and the gallows, instead of ensuring their full dignity as human beings and citizens, executes them and completes the disgrace of their annihilation with mass graves. The day when a government that was supposed to care for them becomes their most ruthless enemy. That is the solitude that befalls a nation when they are abandoned. It is solitude of unimaginable enormity. The fact that you know if unknown men break into your house one night, blindfold you and take you away, you have no one to call. You cannot call the police or a lawyer or a soldier or a doctor or even a priest. You are there in the dark cell alone with absolutely no control over your present or your future. This solitude leaves such deep scars that also your children, who have never perhaps had to experience the darkness of a prison cell, will be altered by it. Because the world, as they come to know it, is a place where their parents are considered enemies and therefore always seen as suspects. It is like living constantly on the edge of a precipice. One wrong movement and a nosedive into the abyss. Children who learn since the very beginning that to lose someone is as easy as a wrong decision. That the precipice is always there and even if they try to walk gingerly, measuring every step, inching slowly forward, a great careless hand could come and with one nudge simply push them down, just like it happened to their parents. A dictatorship is not wrong in political terms only, because it breeds corruption and violence and backwardness. <coughs> dictatorships are human catastrophes, above all because they seek to make us believe that there is nothing out there for us, that our dreams are not our own, that our bodies are not a space where we try to make sense of our integrity, but a space where life can be given or taken at any given moment, and that our intellect, our mere ability to think, is not our greatest asset, but always and undoubtedly inferior to theirs. Dictatorships are catastrophes because they steal away our childhood and all its innocence, which exists only when adults are able to think and speak without fearing its consequences. And when adults are forced to silence, either physically or psychologically, that innocence is shattered and nothing can take its place. 
In that moment, you have come face to face with the depth of that solitude, understanding that if one night they come breaking in into the house and take your parents away, you will not be able to do anything. And if one night they come breaking in and take you away, your parents will not be able to do anything. And the moment you understand that, your innocence is gone forever and solitude takes its place. And even though years pass and your body grows, it is always the body of a child who has never learned how tall she can really stand. I was once asked whether I would ever stop being the child of political activist, the child born in prison, the child in that photo staring at the camera like she was demanding something that went beyond anyone's control, the child with the bracelet hidden in her pocket. The question shook me. I did not know how to answer it. First, I thought the question was meant to be about me as a writer, about my obsessions with what I write about. I thought it was simply an indirect question about the theme of my next novels, whether such a past would continue to haunt me until it has been exhausted, until all the stories have been told. But then I realized that the question was not about that, was not about me and my writing. It was not about me as a writer, but me as a person, as Sahar. Who is Sahar beyond the child born in prison? And perhaps it even went deeper than that. It was about who is Sahar, but also about who are Neda and Shayda and Sara and Omid. Who are these children who were hurt since the beginning? The children whose birth was tied with death, whose childhood was formed by separation. Who are the children of the revolution? The children who were raised with slogans such as tulips have been born from the blood of our youth and our revolution was an explosion of light. The children who were once so used to being called the burnt generation that we hardly stopped to ponder what it really meant. Who are these children and what is their relationship with their past? How do they seek to make sense of their country, of the revolution, their parents' participation in it, their interpretation of it, of the pride and grief and confusion that followed characterizing the beginning of their existence? Will you always be the child born in prison? The question continued to echo in my head. Or will you move on? Will you become something else? Will you unbound yourself from that past? Will you become a child with a normal birth story to tell? Or rather, no birth story at all to speak about. It was not about tears, I realized. It was about memory. And not about my memory alone, but the memory of every one of us, every child whose birth marked the birth of a nation. This was not a question about my past. It was a question about our historical memory. It was about being the child of the Islamic Republic of Iran and knowing that this republic once created every obstacle possible for you, perhaps, not to be born at all. I do not believe memory to be something of the past. 
I believe memory to be a living entity, present, necessary, indestructible. Something that breathes and grows and sings and lays the foundation for what we are to become, both as individuals and as a nation. It is the foundation upon which we have to construct our present and our future. It is not something that ceases to exist only because we are impatient to reach better days. For better days could never be made possible without having memory to stand upon, solid and resolute. If the last 30 years of Iranian history has been of war and violence and repression and turmoil, it has also and above all been 30 years of fighting and resisting. It is 30 years of not having forgotten, despite all, those ideals of a more just and equal and free society and still being willing to fight for it. Hence, those children, that burnt generation, has grown up and has set out to find its voice through revolting and voting, through colors, be they green, purple, white or red, through slogans and poetry, stone throwing and article writing, exile and prison, Facebook and YouTube, chanting and discussing, falling apart and regathering, running and standing with their hands on their heads, listening and giving speeches at university entrances, taking off their scarves to tend to another's gunshot, gunshot wound, calling their own children Sohrab and Nida. Because they know their past was once their parents' present, and their memories once their parents' nightmares. And it was not so much about finishing what was left undone by their parents, but about setting time in motion, and knowing that carrying history with you has never meant falling short of the future. It is to these children that I dedicate Children of the Jacaranda Tree. Thank you. And I'll give you one more reading. I'm reading a lot. And, um, and then if, if you have um, any question, I'll be, I'll be happy to answer it. I had a, uh, I had a um, bookmark somewhere. I lost it. <clears throat> okay. Starling perches on the railing in front of the window. Under the damp sky, the geraniums look out of breath. Dusk is slow in falling. Sitting behind her computer, Shayda takes a sip from the iced tea sh she made with the Iranian dry tea leaves Maryam sent her a few months ago. Shayda likes the smell of brown cardboard boxes arriving from Iran. They smell of dust and memory. This is the smell of Iran, she once told Valerio. She smelled the tea, the pair of green gloves her aunt knitted for her, the packet of barberries, and a note from Maryam reminding her to wash them several times before use, which Shada has never been able to throw away. Her computer purrs sleepily under her fingers. She scrolls down the page, skimming through the news on an online Persian newspaper. 
since the uprising against the rigged elections in June and the government crackdown that followed, most of the news coming out of Iran is about the protests, mass arrests, attacks at university dorms, street shootings, torture in prison, prisoners of whom no news has been given for months, and protesters whose lost lives are unaccounted for. There are also videos that have been uploaded by the protesters on the scene. Shada has watched every one of them. Of protesters running down the streets, some away and some toward the anti-riot security guards with their bulletproof uniforms and batons as they throw stones and shout out anti-regime slogans. The images on the screen fill Shada with anxiety every time she sees them. As though she's late for something, or left behind, excluded. She's envious of the burst of energy in that young crowd, of the way it is all happening without her, of the way her place in that tide of history is an unoccupied. At the same time, she's afraid of the bloody faces and the gunshot wounds and the baton-swinging security guards on motorcycles. She clicks on a video of people chanting slogans on rooftops at night. Allahu Akbar, she hears from every side. Allahu Akbar. The buildings and the rooftops from which the invisible men and women holler are soaked in darkness. All she can see are the little lights shimmering behind closed windows. But their shouts and the furious strength ringing in them grow louder and louder as if they are trying to reach the clouds and tear through them. Shada watches, her heart beating so wildly that her eyes begin to hurt. As the night sweeps over the buildings, covering the shadows of the chanting bodies, entering the small vision of the camera. The ecstasy of it all, the pure harmony of it baffles her. Women and men, young and old, feeble and strong, chanting slogans against the wrong done to them. Slogans for whatever memory of justice they can fathom. Behind her computer, Shada whispers their words, their slogans, their cries of resistance, their calling of God, calling their God against the dictator. Her mother told her that going on rooftops and chanting Allahu Akbar was something they did during the revolution 30 years ago. It was a form of protest. It was safe, symbolic, something everyone could do. And now it has come back. When all fails, shout Allahu Akbar, her mother added with a sad, resigned shake of her head. But Shada does not feel sad. She feels exultant and small, unpardonably small, before the magnificence of these madly awe-inspiring and yet desperate chants. She can feel their chants surrounding her and their night penetrating her skin, their lovely, uncompromising voices swelling inside her veins, inside her lungs. She can almost see their God, can almost touch their voices that call upon him as they straighten their backs, shout louder and louder, Allahu Akbar, shedding their fear into the blue night. She feels like they are becoming an irrevocable part of the rhythm of her breathing. Their voices calling out to her. She can almost see herself standing on a rooftop, her fist clenching the air. As the video ends, 
Shada lets out a sigh. She feels lightheaded and leans back in her chair. She takes another sip from her iced tea. The ice cubes tumble from side to side and against her lips. She clicks back on the home page, looking for other videos to watch, when a headline at the bottom of the page catches her eye. This is the second time in recent weeks that she has seen an article about the post-revolution imprisonments and executions. She does not know if it is a coincidence or if with so many men and women 20 years later in prisons of Tehran and other cities, the past is resurfacing almost as a premonition. Yet something else draws Sheida to these articles and their tales of prison violence and death. They remind her of similar tales uttered by her grandmother those few times Sheida and Maryam went to visit her in Hamidan. The tales Sheida heard were in drips and drabs, tumbling out of her grandmother's mouth when she did not know Sheida was eavesdropping, when Maryam and grandmother were alone in the room. Shada watched through the keyhole as her grandmother turned into a different person. Her usual loud voice lapsed into a hushed whisper as she dabbed her teary eyes, which wavered from those of Shada's mother who sat there, her face closed like a rock. Maryam's silence and staring vacant look made Shada uneasy. It felt as if her mother concealed something in that silence, defended it behind her vacant eyes. At, at the time, Shada wished more than anything to get away from that silence. It was suffocating, and yet the sorrow roaring in her grandmother's face kept her there, behind the door, her ears attuned to her whispering voice. Why is grandma so sad? Shada wondered. She tried harder to listen, to understand the words that she had a feeling she was not supposed to hear, for she sensed the evil in them and the pain. She picked them up like a bee flitting around forbidden flowers sucking the sweet nectar. She wanted to hear as much as she could, wanted to understand whom these stories were about. It was hard, for no name was mentioned and her grandmother's voice seemed to keep dying. Shada knew that she couldn't ask her mother or she would know the child eavesdrops. Later when she asked her grandmother, a despairing look fell over her face, despairing and so devastatingly sad that it frightened Shada. I can't speak, her grandmother said, I can't speak. And those were the only words Shada was left with as she left her grandmother's room. Only once did Shada succeed in getting an answer from Maryam to the question about her grandmother's sadness. Maryam looked at her for a moment. Her gaze seemed to go right past her as if she didn't really see her. It's because of your baba, Shada. Grandma's sad for her son, she said after a few moments. But what does baba have to do with prison? Shada asked. And as she did, she felt the heat running to her cheeks, for she realized she had given herself away and her eavesdropping. Mayam glared at her, a glare Shada would never forget. It is all one big prison, Shada. We are all in one big prison. Thank you very much.
I'm here for any questions. Yes. So, so given the way that you've characterized dictatorships, and particularly your experience uh, of someone born and characterizing yourself as a child of the revolution, um, what, what in your opinion and your experience differentiates the experience of this dictatorship versus dictatorships elsewhere in the world that have been toppled and have changed, and the methods and approaches that each society has taken. What is different about the Islamic Republic that, that um, has resulted in these attempts were changed, but albeit unsuccessful attempts? Well, I actually don't think there is any difference. Um, there are dictatorships that last longer, there are some that last less. We still have dictatorships right now in countries that has lasted um, 40 years, like if we look at Burma, for example. So I actually think that dictatorships are all exactly the same. And there's nothing new about Iran. It could be the first maybe like religious dictatorship in, in, in recent history. but. I think that is exactly the point, that they're all the same. So what happened in Argentina or what happened in Italy or, I mean, if you really think about, for example, Italy, is which where I live, like the Mussolini dictatorship took a few decades. And I always say you guys had like two world wars to get rid of your dictators. So from that point of view, we're a little bit actually ahead, I would say. Um, so, and even, Evin prison. Evin prison is a symbolic prison. There has been there have been many Evin prisons in the world. There are still many Evin prisons right now. So I don't think there's anything different. I think that people in Iran have um, have come up. I don't know with a sort of a conclusion that they want changes to be maybe slow, which is what I believe reform means, and that they don't want to maybe topple anything. And I think that is what happened with, if, if you were referring to, for example, 2009 movements. Nobody wanted to topple anything, and that's why people went back home, because they needed to understand what is the next move? What is this, where is this taking us? I think there's a high level of political maturity in that. To stop when you think, I don't know where this is taking me, and I'm paying a big price that take a step back maybe and think about our next movement. So I'm not sure if the dictatorship is different, but I think Iranian people's mind is different from the other countries. And um, they don't want the same thing or they don't want another revolution. Probably they think you cannot have every revolution every 30 years. It's, it's impossible. So. Whereas maybe other countries, but if even if you look at other countries in Europe, there has always been a transition in Spain, for example. So I think maybe that is the sort of um, idea that they have in their head um, to sort of go toward the future with these slower steps. So, so the prison con continues then? The prison, of course, the prison continues. It's Nothing has changed. We're still... Um, I think everyone knows that. I think that's quite evident. And um, for the, that prison to end, we, we probably need more time. We probably need 
more changes, of course, and things have to change. Um, but this is not the time for democracy. We're not in a democratic country. We might have taken a few steps or at least stopped a trend that was taking us right into, into the abyss again. So prisons are still there. We have about 800 political activists right now in prison. So yes, they're still pretty full, unfortunately. This is your first novel, yeah. and uh, when did you start writing? And uh, you know, this is quite a, quite a feat, as Dr. Mirani mentioned, to, to write such prose as your first novel. Can you speak about that? Um, well, technically, it's not my first novel. Um, I wrote three novels before this one. This is my first published novel. I started writing when I was 22, and um, I wrote these three novels because I sort of believed in like learning how to write through writing and not going through to a writing school. That took three novels for me to get there. Um, so that was sort of the process. And then at a certain point after the third novel, I thought I should start writing short stories and try to get those published and just see where that takes me, my writing. And, um, and then every time I was writing a short story, I kept coming back to this theme. This theme wasn't something that I thought of. Surprisingly, everybody thinks that, you know, even the birth story wasn't the first chapter. I wrote it much later. But I think things that you live with are so much part of your life you don't see anymore. And I think that's a little bit what happened. And um, so, then going back to the same theme over and over again, I realized I was obsessed with it. And I realized that I, I kind of want to put this into a novel. And um, that's when I decided to turn to, to start writing the, the book as a novel. And, um, and, then, and then I finished three years later. So 2009 finished 2012, 12, more or less. How yeah. old you were when you left the country? I was 12. You were 12? Yes. So your book has been translated to 27 mm -hmm. languages? Yeah. Has it been translated to Persian? My dad is translating it. It's almost done. Um, so yes, <laughs> it has been translated into Farsi, and um, but it hasn't been published yet. We're working on the on the rest of it. Once the translation is over, we will see what's the best thing um, to do to get them into the hands of Iranians, especially in Iran and outside, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll ask another question. So clearly, this novel. While it's not a life story, um, and you make that very clear, you've got, you've got uh, other characters in there. But nevertheless, um, it is inspired by your personal and, and, and experience that your family had. Mm -hmm. What would be um, something of another topic that may form the basis of another novel where you don't have that sort of intimate knowledge and experience associated with it as a writer. So my question is, as a writer, if you have another novel that you're starting to work What's on... What's the difference? What, what, what would be the domain in which you would be comfortable in trying to express? 
What? It's, it's really, you know, you, you had an advantage here. You yeah, had an advantage I definitely did. Uh, sure. But, you know, I think it's also about the way you work. Um, there are novelists who don't really, not because I don't think there's a more interesting life story or a less interesting one, but that are not so much inspired by what that reality is. At the same time, I don't think there's any novelist ever who writes things that are not in one form or another based on reality. And by reality, even the reality of imagination, I mean, I don't think that um, we're ever away from that, completely detached from it. But of course, that is different from basing it on something. I personally, I'm, I've realized something after those three novels that works about other things, that I'm inspired by people I know. I'm very, it, the characters are not them, but somehow looking at people around me, they, they, they inspire me somehow. And, and I'd like to, when I think about them, my work, my mind starts working in a way. And Hemingway always said, you know, write about what you know. And Fellini said that write about your own story. And I really took those two, um, as I say, suggestions to the heart. <laughs> and, um, and I did, and, and I think I feel very comfortable in that. Now I can live and have other stories to tell. But it's not even so much about what I experience. I think it's, for me, it's more about that time period. I really do believe that it changed the history of Iran. It became another country after that. For, that is very interesting for me, and, and I think you can look at it from many different points of view. So I don't, I don't even feel that I'm done with this, with this um, theme and with that particular period, with the 80s in particular in Iran, and then 2009. It's, interesting to look at individual lives while history is taking shape and how people live it and how much influence people have on those changes so so yeah i mean you know um it's good to have those it's good to talk to people um but at the same time i, th I don't think you should be taken too much by that because then your own characters need to breathe as well so it's sort of a mix between the two How did you come up with the title? Um, the title actually does have a story behind it. Um, the Jacaranda tree, I don't know if you know the Jacaranda tree. Some of you might be from Southern California. There are lots of Jacaranda trees. It's a, it's a tropical tree. So it doesn't exist in Iran. Iran is not a tropical country. Um, but for me, it was sort of a utopian image. And the story was that um, when we had already moved to California, and uh, my grandmother who raised me and my brother and my, my cousin, while my parents were in prison, um, we were watching TV one day. And then there's an image of, of this jacaranda tree on the, on the screen. And, and then she, all of a sudden her face lights up. She's like, oh, I tried to have one of these in Iran. I tried to sort of plant it in my little garden in Iran. And it never made it. I didn't pay attention at the time. I was a teenager. I wasn't that interested in my grandmother's tree stories. But later on, when I was writing the book, this idea of my grandmother 
wanting that tree and not having that tree kept coming back to me. And as the book took shape, for me it was sort of um, symbolically um, like the Iranian revolution, that there was so much hope and so many desires and so many expectations. And uh, my parents, you know, generation thought that it would become a beautiful tree like this tree full of these beautiful flowers. And it didn't. It didn't grow to be that. And so children of the Jack Randall tree are those children um, of, of the revolution, but especially those activists who participated in the revolution, believed in the revolution, but then fell victim to it themselves. Um, that's the story behind it. Thank you. <laughs> they say it also has a potentially bad after smell. Yeah. Okay. I, I it's, it, when it's young and in bloom, mm -hmm. it's beautiful mm -hmm. and but very aromatic. Yeah. When it's, when not, it's not, it is extremely <laughs> unaromatic. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was because oh, I, I, I became very interested uh -huh. in the little research on the tree, and I that's found that on both sides, it's both the utopia and the dystopia. Yeah, that's great. It's the young versus old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's very good. Well, in Portugal, they told me that they have a lot of um, these trees in Lisbon, and um, they were brought from Brazil. And they're amazing because these trees have that sort of biological characteristic to 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 bloom in in um, in spring. But of course, the spring in in Brazil is exactly the opposite. So these trees in Portugal actually bloom twice. Once because it's biologically time to bloom, but it's winter, and once because the climate is springy again, and they bloom again. So they they bloom twice. That was that was really nice. I didn't know that. So yeah. Any last questions? I wanted yes. to ask you a question. You mentioned that your dad has translated this book, mm -hmm. and you're trying to publish it in Iran. I'm foreseeing a lot of problems with that. Yeah, I'm not. Um, trying to publish it in Iran. Oh, I see. Outside. And then figure out a way to get it. To, to, to get it inside, yes, yes. I mean, you know, of course one can try and try to see if you can get a permission, but... Um, I mean, books for nothing, they don't get permission, so... Well, you can do what Dr. Milani did with Shaw. Yes. You can put it on internet for free. Yes, yes, he gave me a lot of valuable information today. <laughs> yes, yes, that was that was first thing that went through my mind to to figure out a way to have the Iranians be able to 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 download it and read it. Also because like there's already a um, interest I have to say it's very interesting from Iran people are sending me messages because of some interviews they saw me do and they it's amazing how full of passion and enthusiasm and um, gratitude for for some for some reason, and um, that's that's beautiful. That that really makes me very happy. I think it's yeah. almost cathartic for them to yeah. have you write this because it's also telling their stories. So yeah. You finally, have someone who's telling what they are going through or they what they have been going through, uh, memory-wise, just similar yeah. to what your experiences have been yeah. growing in yeah. that environment. So 
Yes, yes. It makes sense that they, they are interested in your story. Yeah. Well, you know, also because a lot um, of people who go through um, tragedies like this, then they sort of like, not that they move on, but somehow you just start living your life again and, and you don't think about the effects it still has on you. And um, so it's it's good for, for, I guess, for them when they they realize that it was actually an important thing that happened. It should not have happened. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I feel that, that they feel that too, I think, yeah. Yes? So you left Iran when you were 12? Yeah. Did you ever go back? Many times, yes. Oh, you did? Yes, 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 yes. Oh, you didn't have any problem going back? No, no, because we left the country um, legally, <laughs> let's say, so there was no no problem, no. I mean, my parents had already served their prison sentence, and um, and we left like you ten... You personally didn't have any political... No, no. But my parents kept going back, you too. Written the novel yet. And I hadn't written the novel yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, but since the publication, no, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm going to um, wait a few years, <laughs> I think. So, so going back to my question, yeah. so you left Iran when you were 12. Yeah. Do you think if you had lived there like through your teens and younger 20s, your views in your book would have been any different about the characters? It's very, very hard to, to say. Um, of course, if you live in, in a country your view of the world is different and your view of, of your history is different. In the book, I try to be honest about the fact that, I mean, the, the, the first half of the book that is set in the 80s, I have I set them in the 80s with the people who are living there. But the second half, which is sort of a looking back at history and sort of interpretation by the children, I always have them from the point of view of a person who goes back because I, I thought I had to be honest about that. Now, it does not mean that the person who's in there doesn't have that point of view. I don't know, but I felt like my point of view is anyway from a person who is looking. I mean, it's a different thing when you look at videos of being people being beaten than being there. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't think that changes what happened in Iran in the 80s. I believe that people, see, I mean, I talk to my friends, almost all of our friends are prison friends in Iran and their children, and, and um, they, 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 I feel like they think like me, or I think like them. I think that is something that interesting that is happening with our generation, maybe because there's a lot of networking, there's a lot of connection, that we're not so away and far from each other, I would say. So I might and might not have written this, but at the same time, I think, um, I think it's just about um, sort of documenting that history and the effect it has had. Now, if it's from the point of view of an insider and an outsider, I don't think at that point it probably doesn't matter so much, but it matters as in the narrative voice, of course. But I don't know. Yeah? I, I usually feel that there is a disconnect between the new generation and our generation in Iran, like your parents. And I see there is no this disconnect between you and them. Mm -hmm. I want to see what is your opinion about the most of the young, that maybe their parents, they would not be in prison, mm -hmm. and they came out. How do you think? I, I, I see some disconnect, so I think 
our history somehow is unknown in general with your generation. I want to see what is your your view of that. Well, I mean, I think these connections, of course, exist. I think it would be. I mean, these connections exist between people who are living in the same society. So I think um, I think society is very heterogeneous. So we, anybody could think anything. I personally don't think there is that much disconnection. But at the same time, I think it depends on who I talk to. Um, I think it's important, maybe something that I do feel is that my generation might have a little bit forgotten what happened to the parents. Or rather, because we're still living in that sort of situation under the, at the same dictatorship, the same regime, we kind of feel like, okay, but we have the same. What was so special about, about your experience? I feel that sometimes. And I think that is wrong because our parents made the revolution happen. So we have to understand what happened then, what did they go through, and use that um, for our future. But you know, Iran has always been a very complicated country. <laughs> you know, there are many differences via the economic, cultural, and so on. And, and then the diaspora has been out for a long time. So um, there are, of course, Iranians who have no idea what is happening in Iran. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a little bit more unity than, than in the past. I feel that. I feel like people are talking more. And Facebook has helped. Yes? Uh, you said that you wrote about the 80s. I was just wondering if the matter of Iran-Iraq war at all... Yes, yes. Of course. Yes, yes, yes. The, the, the war is going on while... Yeah. And, and you see it in the, in the novel as the... As the characters into the novel, yes, yes, of course, of course, it was very important. Yes, not a question, but I just wanted to tell you that we're very proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much for coming.